Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In today's episode, we have our continuing series on the life of Jacob with our scholar-in-residence, James Jordan. And today, he's going to be finishing up his thoughts on Genesis 31 with Jacob leaving Laban. And along the way, he'll give some very clarifying and helpful thoughts on covenant-making and God separating things to make something new. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan in Genesis 31 on the life of Jacob. Genesis chapter 31, and what have we seen? Well, we saw that the passage begins by stressing in the words of the narrator, and that means the inspired judgment on what has been going on in chapter 31, 17 and 18, that Jacob lifted his children and his wives and led away his livestock, all the property that he had acquired, not stolen, acquired livestock of his own acquiring that he had gained in the country of Aram. Now that makes it real plain that all of this was honestly and legitimately come by and it all belongs to Jacob. That sets us up so we don't have any doubt as to who's telling the truth and who's lying in the passage that follows. Laban has gone to shear the sheep and Rachel steals the teraphim or teraphim. And we discussed last time what those were. They're household gods as opposed to national gods or cosmic gods of the ancient world. And they bless the family. They're related to ancestors almost certainly. You use them for divination. Why did Rachel take them? Well, I said that it's not likely that she was taking them to guarantee an inheritance because they were leaving. And it wasn't going to guarantee anything. It's not likely that she took them because she had an imperfect understanding of the true religion, because when she sits on them, that's not the way you would treat gods that you took seriously. So it seems most likely that she took them simply as a way of attacking the enemy, the heart of Laban. There's a direct parallel between Rachel stole the teraphim that belonged to her father and Jacob stole the heart of Laban the Aramean. That's in verses 19b and 20a. Direct parallel. And the heart of Laban is his God's. When Laban speaks to Jacob, he catches up with him. The first thing he says in verse 26, What did you mean to do by stealing my heart? There's wits here, but literally it's stole my heart. That's the first thing he says. And at the end of his speech in verse 30, he says, Why did you steal my God? Those things are directly parallel and they're bracketed. Where your treasure is there will your heart be. If it's the true God, that's where your heart is. If it's false gods, then that's where your heart is. So she attacks the heart of Laban because his heart is evil. We'll see in a few minutes that there is some idea of blessing here. We can't exclude it. Was Rachel seeking to secure a blessing by taking these? I don't think that's entirely the right way to look at it, but we'll have to come back to this question and discuss that in just a moment. We saw that Jacob crosses the Euphrates into the area that God had said would eventually belong to Israel, that he travels for a couple of weeks. It takes a couple of weeks for Laban to catch up with him. 
It takes him seven days on the road to catch up with him with a band of men. And Jacob is traveling much more slowly with a bunch of camels and women and livestock. And it takes Jacob seven days. And these numbers are significant. On the third day, Laban finds out about it. He organizes for a couple of days. He travels for seven days. These are climactic numbers. They indicate times when things change. Things are going to come to an end. Things are going to be resolved. And he brings his kinsmen with him. And I mentioned last time, reiterate, that everything that happens here is played out in a courtroom setting in front of these kinsmen. All the speeches that are made are for them. These aren't conversations between Laban and Jacob. There's no need for Jacob to say the things he says to Laban or Laban to say the things he says to Jacob. They've had 20 years to know what each other's like. These speeches are made in front of the armed men who uh, have the power to do something about the situation. And Laban has organized them to try to force Jacob to come back. Now, they're not going to do that unless they're convinced that that needs to be done. So these speeches are important, and it's important for us to understand that they're in a judgment situation with a group of men who are kinsmen passing judgment. When Laban crosses over the Euphrates into God's territory, God appears to him and says, don't speak good or evil to Jacob. That means don't pass judgment. In Laban's mind, that means that this Yahweh is on Yahweh's turf now, so he's going to have to be careful. He doesn't really conceive of Yahweh as a universal God, but now he's in Yahweh's particular neighborhood. He's going to have to be careful, and he is. He obeys. In verse 25, we get an array for battle virtually. Jacob pegged his tent in the mountains, and Laban, along with his brothers, pegged in the hill country of Gilead. We've got two mountainsides here and tents put up. And the way it's described is as if you've got two armies arrayed for battle with a valley in between them where you would fight your battle. And so this is all being set up. So that the ancient hearer of this text would get the image of these two camps here. And conflict and armed men... And something's got to be settled and resolved here. And Laban makes his speech in front of the assembled kinsmen in verses 26 to 30. Laban said to Jacob, What did you mean to do by stealing my heart and leading my daughters away like captives with the swords? He accuses them of forcing the girls to leave. They wouldn't have left voluntarily. This man is either very deceived or he's trying to trick the kinsmen. I imagine Laban knows his daughters don't have any use for him. But he's saying this so that the assembled court is swayed in a certain direction. He wants the kinsmen to think that Jacob forced his poor daughters to leave. Why did you secretly flee and steal away from me without even telling me? Well, Laban knows why. <laughs> it isn't a conversation. Laban knows full well why Jacob would steal away. But this is for the audience. I would have sent you off with joy and song with drum and lyre. Again, that's for the audience. You did not even allow me to kiss my grandchildren and my daughters. Playing for the audience. You behave like a fool and the rod is for the back of a fool and it lies in my hand's power to do you ill. But I won't because your God, the God of your father, told me not to. But look, you have to steal my God. I respect your gods when I'm in your territory. Why didn't you respect my gods when you were in my territory. 
All of this designed to put Jacob in a very bad light. Well, Jacob answers and says to Laban, probably a good deal more than is recorded here, but this is what we have. Verse 31, before the assembly, he says, Look, I was afraid, for I said to myself, Perhaps you will even rob me of your daughter. Now, we could fill that in. So, Laban, you know that you changed my wages ten times. Laban, you know that you have a reputation as a deceitful man that steals from people every time he gets a chance. And Laban, considering how you had used up all your daughter's dowry, I was afraid you'd even steal them as well. Well, Jacob may well have said all this and much more in the ears of this assembled crowd. But it's summarized here. Maybe this is actually all he said. It's all he needed to say. I figured you'd rob me of your daughters the way you've robbed me of everything else. But look, if somebody took your gods, he will not live. Here in front of our brothers, see if you recognize anything that's yours with me and take it. Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Now we come to where we left off last week, in verses 33 to 35, the search for the teraphim. And here the narrator kind of gives us a little suspense if we were listening to this being read. Levon came into Yaakov's tent, and he came into Leah's tent, and he came into the tents of the two maids, and he did not find anything. And he went out of Leah's tent, and he came into Rachel's tent. Now we know that that's where they are. Now, what's going to happen? And Rachel had taken the teraphim, and had put them in the basket saddle of the camels, and had sat down upon them. And Levon felt all around the tent, and he did not find anything. And she said to her father, do not let upset be in my Lord's eyes. That's not real nice English there, is it? Do not let confusion be residing in my Lord's eyes. Don't look so confused that I am not able to rise in your presence. For the manner of women is upon me. And he searched, and he did not find the teraphim. Now, although at this point in history... Menstruation does not make a woman unclean for a week. Later on it does. And so anyone hearing this passage read after the giving of the Mosaic Law would instinctively put that in it. In other words, if you are a Jew, women have always known not only is it awfully inconvenient and awfully problematic and they have to wash and everything else, but also during this period of time, They can't go into the tabernacle. If they were planning to offer a sacrifice, they can't do it. If it happens during Passover, they have to stay away from Passover. They're ceremonially unclean. This is a thing that's connected with other forms of uncleanness like pigs and leprosy, all of which are also the symbolic forms of uncleanness. This adds a dimension to it. Rachel is almost certainly not on her time of women because I think that the text would have said it that way if it was. It would have said the manner of women was upon Rachel and she said, but it doesn't say that. It just says that she claimed it. So she's almost certainly lying or deceiving. But we get the idea. You're defiling these idols. And idols are called unclean in the Bible. And so to treat idols with uncleanness is entirely appropriate. However, we also have to say that if Genesis was written by Joseph, that'd be my guess, in the first couple of hundred years in which people heard this passage read, they didn't have this word tame or unclean associated with it. It's just grossness. 
And you don't treat idols in a gross way either. You don't spit on them. You don't urinate on them. And you don't menstruate on them. And so, this is degradation. Even if it's not formal and technical uncleanness, it's degradation. And that's part of the humor here. That's part of the mocking and scoffing at the impotence of these false gods. These guys aren't able to do much of anything. Yahweh just appeared to Laban in a dream and threatened him. Now look at these gods. Look how they're being treated. They can't do anything. They don't exist. They're just little statues. See, they don't exist. They're not real gods. So there's a clear contrast here between Yahweh, Elohim, God who is called the fear of Isaac here, and who appears to people in the night and threatens them. And these gods who don't say anything and can't do anything even when they're being grossly humiliated. Then we read that Laban felt all around the tent. And this is exactly the same word as in chapter 27 where Isaac felt around to know if it was really Esau or not and was confused. And it's common and I think inescapable to link these two passages. Rachel is a lot like Rebecca. She sets up this deception. She tells a lie in order to bring it to pass. The teraphim that Laban is looking for are like Esau. Isaac had all of his hopes pinned on Esau. Esau was his heart. Of Esau provided the food for his belly. And these gods, these teraphim, are Laban's heart. And he wants all of his hopes and dreams back, which are connected with these teraphim. And Isaac wanted Esau, who was the one he had all his affection and his hopes and dreams put on. But in both cases, they're defeated. Now, what was Jacob getting when he pretended to be Esau and went in and Isaac felt him and Isaac did what? Well, he gave him the blessing. And so, since the receiving of a blessing from the Father is in that first story, I think we have to say that there is at least some idea of receiving the blessing connected with these teraphim. But what is it? Does Rachel think, if I steal these, I'm going to get my Father's blessing and we'll take it with us to the new land? Well, if she thinks that, she's wrong. And later on in chapter 35, they're told to take all these gods and bury them. So if that's in her mind, if that's part of her mind, then she's in error. Now, I don't think that can be correct. There's another way in which blessing can be connected with this, but I don't think that works for the reasons we've given before. In the first place, they're leaving Laban's territory, so she knows she's not going to inherit any property. She can't show up later on and say, look at all these gods here. My father gave me these gods as a sign that I should inherit. Well, that's not going to happen because we've got a courtroom scene here in which Laban is denying that he's given the gods to anybody. Well, that's out. And if she thought that these gods were magically going to bring about a blessing, she wouldn't be sitting on them. So that's not it. So what is she doing? Well, remember when we talked about what Rebecca was trying to do. Did Rebecca think that the blessing was so magically tied to Isaac that Jacob had to go in there and get it. And God couldn't get around that. And my conclusion was that no, she didn't think that. That ultimately what she was trying to do was to shake Isaac up. I think that she and Jacob both knew that God could work around any sin on Isaac's part. If Isaac gave all the blessing to Esau, it wouldn't matter 
because Yahweh could get around that. And what Rebecca was really trying to do, and I tried to show this before, was to bring Isaac to the point where Isaac would have to face facts and repent, and that worked. I think, if that's right, and I think it is, something similar is happening here. Rachel is not taking the teraphim because she thinks they're going to bless her, but she is removing from her father's household this false hope of blessing. She's striking down an idolatrous view of blessing. And she's attacking the idea that blessing is going to come from these things by taking them away from the father's household. But I think, given the parallel between the two, there has to be some idea of blessing connected. These are not necessarily easy passages to figure out because we're not told what was in these people's minds. It could have been. The Bible tells us what's in people's minds frequently. When it doesn't, we're sort of left to try to look at the facts and say, well, she took them. They are associated with blessing in the ancient world to some extent. This is parallel to Jacob seeking blessing. There's a lot of parallels here. So in some sense, either she's seeking blessing or she's seeking to deny the blessing, some false kind of blessing. That's the best I can do with that. The one thing to notice is Laban is like Isaac. And Laban's treatment of his daughters, bad treatment, is kind of like Isaac's bad treatment of Jacob. And God has reversed these things. And women are involved in reversing them. It goes back to Eve. The serpent deceived Eve and the woman is the deceiver in Genesis. At every point in Genesis, the woman sets up the deception and it's eye for eye, tooth for tooth, deception for deception. I think that is the theology of deception in Genesis. Well, let's pass from that to verses 36 to 42 and Jacob's speech before the assembled kinsmen. Now, verses 36 to 42, I'll read it. And Yaakov became upset and he took up a quarrel with Levan. And Yaakov spoke up and he said to Levan, What is my offense? And what is my sin? That you have dashed hotly after me. That you have felt all through my wares. What have you found from all your household wares? Set it here in front of your brothers and my brothers, that they may decide between us two. It is twenty years now that I have been under you. Your ewes and your she-goats have never miscarried. The rams from your flock I have never eaten. None torn by beasts have I ever brought to you. I would make good the loss. At my hand you would seek it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. And this is how it was. By day parching heat consumed me, and cold by night, and my sleep eluded my eyes. And it is twenty years for me now in your house. And I have served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your animals, and yet you changed my wages ten times only. Had not the God of my father, the God of Abraham, Abraham, and the terror of Yitzchak been there for me? Indeed, you would have sent me off now empty-handed. In other words, all this claim about sending me off with bells and whistles was a lie. God has seen my being afflicted in the toil of my hands, and yesterday night he decided. Now, this is Jacob's speech in front of all these men. Now, this puts Laban in a bad position. Because all these guys know Laban. <laughs> they know that this is almost certainly true. And they know that Laban hasn't been able to prove his charge that somebody stole his God. And so now Laban is in a very bad position. 
The tables had been turned. And all he can say back is, the daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the animals are my animals, all that you see is mine, but there's nothing I can do about it because you got all the cards. Poor me. That's a sign that he's pretty much defeated. Well, what can we say about this little speech here? Well, Laban had ended his speech with a question designed to put Jacob in a bad light. Why did you steal my God? You stole him. Why did you steal him? Now Jacob begins with a similar question. What is my offense? What is my sin that you dashed after me and felt through all my wares? What is it? What have I done? Well, Laban can't answer that. See? He doesn't even say anything. He doesn't say, well, you did this. He just says, all this stuff is mine. He implies that Jacob has stolen it all, but he can't make that stick. Jacob challenges Laban to produce any evidence of wrongdoing. You felt through everything. You've looked through everything. Bring it out. Let's see it. He charges Laban with unfairness. He says, look, your ewes and she-goats never miscarried. The rams of your flock I never ate. Does that mean they never miscarried? Well, maybe it is. Maybe when Jacob was there, things were miraculous. The rams from your flock I never ate. I never took one. Cooked it on the fly. I never brought any animals torn by beasts. I made it good out of my own flock. At my hand you would seek it whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Well, we can imagine the difference there. If an animal is stolen by night, the shepherd wouldn't necessarily be responsible if he's got them pinned up. But if it's stolen by day and a shepherd's supposed to be keeping watch and he's dozing off, then he'd be more responsible. But he says, look, you insisted I make it good. I made it good. I put up with heat during the day and cold at night. I didn't get much sleep. He says, you changed my wages ten times over. He dealt with that. All of this being said before this court. They all figure it's probably true. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We know what Laban's like. We remember Jacob. They've been around Jacob over the years. They've been together at sheep shearing festivals. These kinsmen know these two men. And he says, God has passed judgment last night. And that's when God spoke to Laban. Laban says the same thing earlier. He says, last night God spoke to me. So it's just before he catches up with him that God speaks. And then we have this interesting name that occurs only here in this passage, the fear of Isaac or the dread of Isaac. And what does that mean? Well, it's not so much the one that Isaac fears, although that's true enough. Remember that Isaac trembled violently when he was caught in his sin back in chapter 27 when he had sought to give the blessing to Esau and Rebekah tricked him. And then he was suddenly aware that God had been active in this situation and he was terrified. So that could be the meaning here, but it doesn't quite work with the grammar. It's rather the one who causes dread. The one who causes dread and is Isaac's God. No easy way to put that into English. You have to really paraphrase it. The God of Abraham, the power, the powerful one associated with Abraham. The dread bringer who was associated with Isaac. And it's appropriate in this context because this dread bringing God, this fear bringing God is the one who has appeared to Laban and says, Watch out, don't say anything good or evil 
to Jacob. Oh, now Laban is afraid of this God. And then later on, this is the God who will go before them as they come into the land. Remember, we noticed, and we'll get to it in chapter 35, that a terror spread around on all the people as Jacob and his family came into the land, just as later on in the days of Joshua. So that's who this is. The one associated with Isaac who brings dread and terror to others. And Jacob mentions that here, uses that name. I think we can look at the human level and say, well, he uses that name because of what's just happened to Laban to remind Laban that, hey, you better be afraid. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Because you're now in the territory of this God, the one who brings terror. And he says, he, this one, has made a decision on my behalf. And that's what is changing things here. I'll read verse 43 to the end of the story. Levon gave answer. And he said to Yaakov, The daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The animals are my animals. All that you see, it is mine. But to my daughters, what can I do to them today or to their children whom they have born? What can I do for them? What can I do to them? Can't very well punish them. Not much I can do. So now come. Let us cut a covenant, you and I, I and you. And let something here serve as a witness between me and you. And Yaakov took a stone and erected it as a standing pillar. And Yaakov said to his brothers or kinsmen, Collect stones. And they fetched stones and made a mound. And they ate there by the mound. And Levon called it a mound of witness in Aramaic. And Yaakov called it a mound of witness in Hebrew, Galid. And Levon said, This mound is a witness between me and you from today. Therefore they called its name Galid, mound of witness. And also Mitzpah, guard post. We'll come back to that. Because he, that is Levon, said, May Yahweh, this God of yours, guard between you and me, between me and you, when we are hidden from one another. If you should ever afflict my daughter, he's still trying to make Jacob look bad. I mean, Laban has to recover himself now, see. All these guys are standing around thinking ill of him for having dragged them out to chase after Jacob. This is costing them time. They were having a nice time shearing their sheep. They've had to leave all their sheep behind. They've been greatly inconvenienced by this. Laban has to recover. And so, once again, we see the theme in Genesis of the wicked tyrant trying to cast the righteous in a bad light. If you should ever afflict my daughters, if you should ever take wives beside my daughters, I know you're that kind of person. Once you're out of my sight, you'll probably beat them all the time. No one is here with us. Behold, God is witness between you and me. And Levon said to Jacob, Levon's saying all this, Here is this mound, and here is the pillar I have sunk between me and you. Actually, it was Jacob who set it up, and now he says it is. Witness is this mound. Witness is the pillar that I will not cross over this mound to you and you will not cross over this mound and this pillar to me for ill. In other words, we can visit each other if anybody wants to, but you can't cross it with ill intent. May the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor keep justice between us, the God of their father. That's Terah. Yaakov swore by the terror of his father Yitzchak. Then Yaakov slaughtered a slaughter meal. He slaughtered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his brothers to eat bread, 
They ate bread, that is meat, and spent the night on the mountain. Then Levi started early in the morning, kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them, and Levi returned to his place. Well, we've discussed verse 43 already. Laban brazenly claims that Jacob is a thief, but that he's helpless to do anything about it. If I attack Jacob, well, then his wives and children would suffer. So, hey, this is all my stuff, but if they're going to leave, I can't hurt my daughters, I can't hurt my grandchildren, so I'll just have to let it happen. What can I do? So, then we come to this covenant. Let's cut a covenant. That's the technical term for making a covenant. It's usually assumed that this word refers to the cutting of animals. An animal is cut. It's cut in half. You can cut it in half and divide it in half like Abraham did the animals in Genesis 15 when God cut a covenant with him. Or you can cut it in half by separating the blood out from the flesh. But either way, you cut the animal into two parts. In the sacrifices, except for the Passover, the animal is always cut up. The bird, you take the head off the bird. It's always divided into two parts. In circumcision, the human being is cut into two parts. And... This cutting into two parts implies this group of people eats one part, this group of people eats the other part, and they're connected by covenant. So if I made a covenant with you, and we killed a fatty calf, and you ate some of it, and I ate some of it, that makes a covenant because we're both eating the same food. That calf is a link between us. And that's what happens here. They kill a sacrifice, and they all eat it together. Both sides eat on it, and that unites them. Now, beyond that, a covenant establishes a boundary and a place of connection. It's a mediator, a firmament between two zones, and here Yahweh is the mediator. So, if we go back to Genesis chapter 1 and all the covenant-making stuff that's going on there, we repeatedly see in Genesis chapter 1, God divides things and He puts something in between them. He divides day and night. That's called a covenant of day and night later on in the Bible. He divides the waters above from the waters below, and he puts the firmament in between them. Well, that's the most fundamental picture of the covenant that we get until we start getting blood sacrifices. With Abraham, he's got animals divided. This bunch of animals represents the land. Abraham says, hey, I'm estranged from the land. It keeps giving me famines. It keeps trying to get rid of me. It keeps casting me out. How can I know I'm going to possess this land? That's in Genesis 15. God says, cut these animals apart. Half of them represent the land. The other half represent Abraham. And God, Shekinah, goes in between them to tie them together. God says, I will bond these two parts together. That's what these pillars are. The pillars and piles of stone are boundary markers. Abraham doesn't go around putting up pillars. Isaac doesn't go around putting up pillars. Jacob puts up pillars four times. This is just the second time. We'll see two more times when he sets up pillars. And he sets them up at boundaries. And what they do is they connect two different places and make possible a relationship between those two places. Now, that's what Jesus is. Jesus is the firmament. He is the covenant. He is the place where God and man meet. We want to go to God. We go through Jesus. God wants to come to us. He comes through Jesus. So he's the mediator between us and God. And that's what all of these covenants represent. They represent ultimately Jesus as the mediator. And the things that are in between that are put there, whether it's blood or a stone 
or something else. They all represent Jesus in between us and God or something in between two people that connects them. It separates them and it connects them and it's a doorway in between. At the Sinai Covenant, you had these pillars down at the foot of Mount Sinai and opposite that you had the altar and the book and blood was put on both. Blood is put on the representatives of the people, which are these pillars. Blood is put on the altar, which is where God's presence is, tying them. So the blood is the thing that's in between. There's always something in between that relates the two things. And in that relationship it says, you are one thing, you are the other thing, but you're related. It's like in marriage. In marriage, women don't become men and men don't become women. They remain mysteriously different from one another. Yet, they're tied together. And same thing here. Laban is going to stay in his turf. Jacob is going to stay in his turf. But there's this boundary in between them. And it's the covenant. And it's Yahweh. And it's the stones. Yahweh is the covenant. He is the stone. Verse 49. They named the pillar Mizpah because, he says, May Yahweh guard between me and you when we're hidden from one another. Well, it's this pillar that's in between. So the pillar between them represents Yahweh between them, guarding between them. This covenant boundary, this firmament, in this case, is symbolized by the pillar and stones, just as the ladder to heaven was symbolized by a pillar. You got heaven, you got earth, in between, you got a pillar. Later on, you're going to put up pillars to mark graves. Chapter 35, as I recall. After Rachel died, Jacob set up a standing pillar over her burial place. Why? It's between death and life. It's between heaven and earth. It's why you do it. And we put up gravestones just to say, this is where Joe Blow is buried. But not in this passage. Not especially when we've had all these other pillars. The pillar is a boundary. It's a grave between heaven and earth. Between death and life. It's a boundary place, and it creates, at least symbolically, a link between the two. Now, why do we have both a pillar and a mound of stones? Well, there are a couple of reasons to start with. You've got two witnesses, so we can just leave it there. A testimony of two witnesses, pillar and pile of stones. There's a little bit more to it, though. The pile of stones is called Galid, which means a mound of witness. The pillar is called Mizpah which is a pun on the word pillar and on the word for watching. That's why it's not quite good enough to call it guard post. It's related to the word for watching, but it's also related to the word for pillar. And so really watching pillar would be the best translation of it here. A pillar that watches between the two. The pile of many stones represents the people. They're gathered by the kinsmen. Jacob said to the kinsmen, collect stones. So each man gets a stone. You got 30 men here? I can tell you there were 30 stones in this pile. And each stone represents a man. And that group of men here is represented by this pile. This pillar over here represents Yahweh. They call the pillar Mizpah. May Yahweh guard between you and me. Here is a mound and here is the pillar. So, God and man agree. God says this is the way it's supposed to be. This group of kinsmen say, yep, 
That's the way it's supposed to be. And so, there is agreement. There are two witnesses here. One witness is Yahweh. The other witness is the community of kinsmen. The text stresses God is a witness. God will see the things nobody else can see. But what is implied, and remember, just remember the scenario, there's all these kinsmen here. If Laban crosses over and tries to cause trouble, these kinsmen have agreed to do something about it. If Jacob crosses over and tries to do something to Laban, these kinsmen have agreed to do something about it. They've said they'll witness it, they'll enforce it. Each one of them has put a stone there saying, we will enforce this arrangement. This is over with. I was in a church 15 years ago where one man brought a bunch of charges against another man in the church. And some men in the church got together, they investigated it, they settled it, Everybody signed a document saying they were completely satisfied and that it was over. A month later, the man brought charges against the elders and against this man. And when we said, wait a minute, you signed a document saying you were satisfied and it was over. He says, well, that meant that I was satisfied as far as the money was concerned, but I'm not satisfied as far as everything else is concerned. So he violated exactly this type of covenant. And he got excommunicated for it. Eventually. This is what's supposed to happen here. This is settled now. It's never supposed to come up again. And all these guys are witnesses for it that it's all settled. And it's useful to look at this. This is common sense and wisdom here. People don't do it, but that's the way it's supposed to be done. And it works. We don't have any more trouble with Laban. Now Laban has to insist. He tries to put himself in the right. Jacob doesn't bother to say anything that's recorded here. I mean, you can imagine if you were in Jacob's shoes. Of course, none of us are likely to be in Jacob's shoes and be 99 years old, excuse me, 97 years old and have this happening. I, maybe you'll get there. But if you are, you probably won't be quite where he is. But, you know, Laban is just saying all this insulting stuff. And Jacob just, hey, in 24 hours this fool will be gone and I won't have to listen to it anymore. So Jacob just sits quietly while Laban says, May Yahweh guard between you and me when we're hidden from each other, as if this was going to be a problem. If you ever afflict my daughters, if you ever take wives beside my daughters, as if Jacob was planning to do that. Nobody is here with us, but God is going to be a witness between you and me. Here is this mound. Here is the pillar. I sunk between me and you. Wait a minute. Jacob put the pillar up. Now Laban says, I put this pillar up. This mound is a witness. The pillar is a witness. I won't cross over to you and you will not cross over to me with bad intentions. Oh, what a speech. Then he says, and this is kind of interesting here, it's an interesting contrast, implied contrast. May the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor keep justice between us, the God of their father. Well, the God of their father is Terah. Terah is the father. What God is this? Well, that's kind of a good question. Because Joshua 24 tells us that they worshipped other gods in Ur. So we have every reason to think that Terah was an idolater. And Nahor may well be an idolater as well. Laban's got them all linked up together. This isn't necessarily a reference to the true God, but to the powers. Remember that the word Elohim in the Bible is plural. Usually it refers to God so we translate it with a singular. God. 
But this could just as well be the gods of Abraham, the gods of Nahor, and the gods of their father. And in Laban's mouth, who knows what it means? It's certainly ambiguous. Jacob, on the other hand, swears by the fear-bringer, the terror-bringer associated with Isaac. Once again, he emphasizes the fear of God, the one who is really the true God. Then we have the covenant meal. I've already mentioned that. Jacob slaughtered a slaughter meal. (laughs) That's the way he renders what we usually call a sacrifice. It's true that the word sacrifice in the Old Testament, this particular word sacrifice, means a covenant meal. We use the word sacrifice in a more general way for any animal or person killed and offered to God. But in the Bible, offering is actually the word used for anything that's not eaten. When the Bible says sacrifice and burnt offerings you have not desired, the word sacrifice refers to the peace offering and means the covenant meal sacrifice. Burnt offering refers to the ascension which nobody eats. It's just killed and sent up to God. So, we could say a peace offering here because they both eat it. And he calls on his brothers to eat bread. That's that word lechem. It shows up in Bethlehem. It means bread, but of course in this context it means what they actually ate was the meat of the animal or animals, depending on how many guys were here, that they killed. And they all ate it. That's what a sacrificial meal does, like anything else. You eat the same food with somebody else and you are becoming sort of one flesh with them. We become one flesh in marriage, but we also become one flesh in a different way in a covenant meal because we all eat the same food. And the same molecules go into me as go into you. And if you live in the same place and drink the same water and eat the same food, people all start to smell the same way. If we all had garlic for lunch, we'd all smell like garlic this afternoon. All of us together. So all these guys are all eating the same food. They're all going to smell like sheep for a day or so. They've all got the same food inside of them. And that's a covenant meal makes people united. Just as this covenant meal today, this bread, not only represents Jesus, but also each other because it links us together and links us with him. They ate bread and spent the night on the mountain. So they all slept in the same place. What does that point to? I think it points to peace. You can sleep because you're at peace. This is a peace offering. And now this peace, we started out with a war camp situation. Now they're at peace because this courtroom setting has brought peace. And then Laban gets up early in the morning. He doesn't wait. He kisses everybody and goes home. And that's a link back to where the story started. When Jacob came, Laban kissed him. Now when he leaves, he kisses. That's in chapter 29, 11, and 13. Jacob kissed Rachel when he met him. And when she brought home, Laban ran and embraced and kissed him and brought him into the house. Now we have a kiss of farewell and it's over. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.